With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online, the fastest, easiest, and safest way to bet on all things sports. With March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Opening Day all right around the corner, Bet Online has all the latest news, scores, and odds to help you win big. The best part? You'll receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your literal free money. Plus, signing up is a great way to support the podcast you're listening to in your ears right now. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, when you sign up at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Blue wire. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the last, oh, blocked by James! It's over, it's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again! The Cleveland Cavaliers select Colin Sexton, Darius Garland. Here comes Sexton, some rhythm. And he got it, young ball continues to wear him out! Do you know what the Cavs fans are calling the Darius Garland, Colin Sexton backcourt? What? Sexland. Oh, that's good. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network, brought to you by betonline.ag. I'm your host, Justin Rowan. Carter Rodriguez is off in Seattle telling women that they can't play video games or whatever his job is. So with me today, I am very excited to announce, is Anthony Lima from 92.3 The Fan. How are you doing today, Anthony? Now, at this very dangerous time for radio personalities in Cleveland, uh, if you're following Cleveland sports, so I want to make sure... The mic sure is on. The mic is on, and I am recording, just just as an FYI. Right. I want to make sure that we're doing everything by the book, and that we hit the brakes on time, and then we'll be good to go. <laughs> How you doing, man? I appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Right off the top, I, I want to say um, a big thank you, because both you and Ken have actually been awesome supporting the podcast, sharing stuff, and and all of that and, and having you come back on it, it, it does mean a lot because uh, we are just two goofballs screwing around and having some fun. And uh, it, it really does. Uh, it matters, man. So put, it, put it this way for all the inflammatory tweets that I send out sometimes under the influence uh, and for, you know, everything Ken, Ken's normally more of a jokester on Twitter these days. Uh, there are, there are people in town in Cleveland, Ohio. I know there are people listening all over the place and I have, I have friends that actually, message me from listening to the last podcast we did from LA. So the, obviously your reach is continuing to grow, which is uh, kudos to you. We gave you a shout out on the radio, not that you need it, but for all the lamenting of what happened to the Cavs post LeBron, no one cares. Cleveland's a football town. We still love the Cavs. I mean, I went to the game last night I was high-fiving strangers and the imagery that I put out there and you can make your jokes all you want. I was high-fiving people like we were in those 80s videos from the Cavs at Richfield <laughs> Coliseum where it was all white people with mullets and glasses, and we were high-fiving. Uh, you know, it, it was a tremendous experience. Look, I wanted the Cavs to get a top-10 pick. Like, that's all I cared about this year. Not, right. I mean, there were other things, too. Macro level, there were things I cared about in terms of, you know, the building of from Colin Sexton to, you know, Porter Jr., Windler, who unfortunately we're not going to be able to see any development this year. But there were things we cared about. But last night, frozen in time, didn't care about any of that other stuff. All I cared about was, you know what? We came back and beat Miami, 
and we were down 22 points and they showed resolve and it was awesome. And so that still is in me, believe it or not. I know people don't believe me when they read my Twitter or hear me on, on the radio, but there are those times where I kind of get lost in a moment. I'm a kid again. And last night was that night. It was so much fun. I'm talking last night. I don't know when this podcast airs, but obviously the win over Miami is what I'm talking about for Monday night. Yeah, it'll uh, likely be up later tonight. I'm, I'm quick with the edits and there's usually not too, too much to clean up. How, ha how have you kind of digested this season? Because I, I think it's always an interesting question to ask when you're looking at rebuilds. Because um, Cavs are obviously in year two of the rebuild. I like to call it year one because uh, I, I have creative accounting with that. Uh, but you, <laughs> you look at some of the um, rebuilds in the past, like Philadelphia, for example, the, the first two years of their rebuild, their first round picks uh, each season was Mo Harkless and Michael Carter Williams. So Boy, I, by the I, way, I saw you make that point today. And yeah. that, that actually, as much as I wanted to debate you, I thought about it and I'm like, wow, I didn't remember that. And I had to go back and look and I'm like, we are all considering this like the Philadelphia rebuild is the name that comes up the most. Remember when the Cavs were building the last time around, which team do we use as the model? It was the Oklahoma City Thunder. Remember, you heard that a lot mm -hmm. with that rebuild, with the Deion Waiters and the Kyrie Irving. That was the Oklahoma City rebuild. That was what we were modeling after. Right. And then you realize no two rebuilds are the same. Every team is different. And we had Jason Lloyd in studios, former Cavs beat writer, who's now with The Athletic, but still obviously pays attention. Uh, to all this. And he took issue with me even bringing up Philadelphia. And he said, well, the Cavs aren't really doing Philadelphia. And I said, well, what do you mean? We're, we're trying to tank. We're trying to get, you know, top five lottery picks. We didn't get luck the last few years. And now we're hoping to do that. And actually, Jason made an astute point. He goes, yeah, but we kept Kevin Love and we kept Tristan Thompson. Yeah. And that's not something Philadelphia did. So you know what? No two rebuilds are the same. I, I, I do think that is really important to highlight. And the funny thing with Philadelphia is after those two years, year three was drafting Joel Embiid. Like their, their luckiest break might have been that the pick fell to three rather than one or two because uh, in all likelihood, they probably would have taken Andrew Wiggins after Embiid got hurt. Um, and then he sat out two years and then they picked Jaleel Okafor. And, and now you're talking about basically four years with nothing to look at. Um, so the Cavs certainly aren't in that situation, but do you feel like this season was a step back, um, a jog on the treadmill where they're not really going anywhere? Like, how, how do you kind of digest this season to this point? Well, I think the one thing you needed to have happen this year was somebody emerge. When I mean emerge, you know, what you're hearing a lot of right now with the Boston Celtics, which you look, the Cavs fans have feuded with Celtics fans, Boston mm -hmm. fans have feuded with Cleveland fans for years. And we didn't want to hear it. We didn't want to hear about Tatum and Brown. We didn't want to hear about their boy wonder head coach, right, who I thought actually made some huge blunders down the stretch against the Lakers. You know, it was a regular season game. But it was mm -hmm. one that everybody seemed to be dialed into the other night. You know, nobody wanted to hear that stuff. And then all of a sudden, if you notice, the last three days, we have all decided as a basketball punditry around the country that they now have a superstar. Finally, the Boston Celtics have a superstar, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you're hearing about Tatum and yeah. the run he's been on. So when, if we're going to do that, if we're going to play kind of silly and fast with the rules and we're just going to look at a 20-game sample size or 10-game sample size, okay, well, now it's time. Let's, let's look at the Cavs during uh, a similar stretch in which we know teams are not getting up for the Cavs. I do think it's important to note 
Nobody's getting up for the Cavs. Nobody is really uh, in any way, shape, or form formulating a defense to slow down anybody on the Cavs. But with that said, Colin Sexton's January, a guy that I've been as hard on as anybody, mm-hmm. his January is a- as promising as can be, right? And, and the first few weeks of February. Kevin Porter Jr., his January and February, and if you look at his really his last 10 games, his 10-game numbers are that of a guy that not only sticks around in this league for the next 10 years, plus is a guy that you start to say, we've got maybe our number two or number three, depending on if you're playing small ball or whatever. And you saw how the Cavs closed last night uh, with a very different lineup. Uh, Actually, they played some bigger ball. But either way, you could sit there and say, I think think you've got some players that are going to have a career. They're going to carve out a niche. And even in some of the playmaking, that you saw out of Garland, you could say, you know what? There is something here. There absolutely is something here. And it's been such a tough year. Forget Cavs fans are going to, they're going to claw and grasp at any signs of optimism. If you're a diehard Cavs fan and you're not one of those who are going to say, you know, I'm done with the NBA, prima donna (laughs) league, post LeBron. Like, I don't want to hear that. The NBA has me. No matter how bad or how good the Cavs are. Right. We're we're, we're the addicts, right? Right. They have us. They have us. I was watching Cedric Henderson and uh, uh, Chris Gatling and Robert Tractor Trailer. Like, I was watching all those teams with, with Whitman as the head coach. Like, I'll, I will always watch the Cavs, no matter how good or how bad they are. Now, I'll be snarky. I'll make fun of them when I think they are going nowhere fast. And there have been many times this year where I thought, man, they don't have a superstar. What's the point? But then at the same time, I go last night and I had a blast watching how frustrated Spolstra and Quinn is their assistant coach. Remember, he used to play Notre Dame and he used to play uh, for Miami. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But they, those two were perplexed. Very, very punchable face on that guy. Uh, extremely. Some people said I look like him at times. So that's why <laughs> I know that firsthand. But I'm watching the two of them. We we're right behind their bench and they had no answers. Mm-hmm. for Kevin Porter Jr. And how many times have we been able to say that about a Cavalier player uh, before LeBron or after LeBron where defenses just don't have answers for mm-hmm. a player? Now, is it going to be consistent? Am I going to be rely- be able to rely on Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, to be able to put that kind of effort? My guess is the next time Kevin Porter Jr. gets that many shots and that many minutes, he'll probably uh, have a very, very futile night. I mean, uh, that's just the way it is for a young player like that who was a project who they did trade up for, you know, at the end of the round, they got him. Yeah. With all that said, finally you see some of that talent come to life. And all of a sudden you notice, and I said this on the radio this morning, all of a sudden, not only did the crowd get involved, I went and watched. They benched Colin Sexton mm-hmm. and – Andre Drummond down the stretch. Do you know who was in front leading the cheers for the entire team? It was Colin Sexton. Colin Sexton, yeah. The entire time. And what do you know? Kevin Love is hustling. Kevin Love is getting on the floor. He's getting a huge putback. Uh, Tristan Thompson's battling his ass off. Uh, Obviously, Larry Nance had a great game yesterday and really caused some problems for Miami. And I get it. They didn't have two of their starters. I understand all that. Beggars can't be choosers. If you're a Cavs fan right now, you have to take what you can get. That that win is not going to cost them a draft pick. It's not going to cost them a chance at a top, you know, three guy in this draft. So you just got to take those wins when you can and think about them not only short-term but long-term. And I think a night like that can be very positive. No, I, I, I completely agree. And one thing 
I, I think with the Cavs is that there's been questions about their hires as a head coach, but the assistants that they brought in really have seemed to be engaged. They were all well-respected. Lang uh, was very highly thought of in Utah. Um, Garrity's done a great job. You, you've seen him add a jump shot to Jetty Osman, who didn't have one. Colin Sexton came into the league with that being one of his biggest question marks. Um, so I, I, I think that that's kind of the, the model they're going for. And I agree with you that they likely don't have a superstar um, yet on the roster. You could always – any guy can take a leap. Um, we, we've seen some – leaps that are kind of hard to imagine before they occur in the NBA. Now, uh, Victor Oladipo, I remember when people were saying that was the worst contract in the league uh, when he was traded in Indiana and he took a leap. Pascal Siakam, uh, Chris Middleton has taken a leap to a star. So you never really know when that's going to happen. And the priority for the Cavs seems to be player development. Take whatever the best talent is at that position, wherever you're drafting and just work with what you got, accumulate those assets but one, one question I have for you, though, when it comes to kind of the reception of this team um, by people in Cleveland, you, you know the Cavs fans are going to be there. They always have a steady base. Um, that, that's one thing I've still been blown away with, even with, with this podcast. Um, the, the numbers are still up there. Uh, we had a higher attendance than the Lakers last year at home, and it's still holding um, steady. Like, it, it's middle of the league, but that's great for a team as bad as the Cavs. Um, but for Cleveland fans in general, do you think there's some sort of emotional baggage um, that kind of carries over from disappointments with other teams? Like you look at the Browns and the hope that they had coming into this season um, and, and just kind of, I, I mean, I don't have to go over Cleveland sports history, but do you think people that are fans of multiple teams in Cleveland maybe approach this Cavs team with a little bit more cynicism? Well, I can only tell you this, that I've noticed this, and it's anecdotal for me, and other people disagree, and Ken and I have disagreed, Ken Carmen and I, and uh, others in town have disagreed about this. When I was younger, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, you're a Cleveland fan, tried and true, all three teams, and not only that, Cleveland Crunch. I'll throw the Cleveland Crunch, the Cleveland Force in there, the soccer teams that were victorious, and, and you know, the Crunch teams won championships. So you rooted for everybody, even Cleveland State basketball. But what I've noticed develop over the last, I would say, five to ten years, these silos developing. And I think Twitter has something to do with it, to be honest, in social media, where you're a Browns fan, I'm a Cavs fan, that guy's an Indians fan. And, yeah, when the teams are playing for World Series or NBA Finals, everybody gets involved, and we see that. I mean, people in Cleveland, there's only so much disposable income to go around, and all mm -hmm. of a sudden, every ticket sold, every suite sold everybody's coming in for the biggest games of the year and celebrities are coming into town that happened. But then when the teams are bad again, there is this constant debate going on in town, which I think is really unfortunate about the sports in general. And yeah, there are things I hate about the NBA. There are things I hate about baseball and there are things I hate about football. I'm not going to let any of that get in the way of me enjoying my local teams. Right. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, there is just this constant divide and conquer that goes on. And I don't think it's unique to Cleveland. I think it happens uh, in a lot of places that don't have winners. Like in Boston, where they have won everything, they don't need to divide and conquer. They can all wear their colors proudly of every team, right. enjoy it, and, and just boast their success and be able to 
getting wars on Reddit pages about how good their teams are. <laughs> but that, I, Ignoring that, that they've uh, been to the finals fewer times and won just as many time, titles as the Cavs <laughs> in the last 30 years. Right. They'll conveniently forget about that and just talk about Larry Bird, right? right I mean, of that's, that's what they'll do. Good old but, days. But yeah, the good old days. But, but you're right. I mean, that, that is a symptom of something larger that I think is happening not just in Cleveland but other places where – we really are kind of, kind of, uh, we're we're trying up our battle lines, and we are are, are deciding what I am. When I don't think it needs to be that. Like I do have a pecking order, without a doubt. I mean, I, I it's changed over the years. When I grew up, I was a diehard baseball fan, scored baseball games. I talk about it all the time on the radio. Then I became a, a, a basketball fan first. I'm a huge college football fan because I went to Ohio State. Then when Greg Oden and Michael Conley played at Ohio State, I loved the hell out of Ohio State basketball. Like, all these things can be true. You can root for all these things that matter to you. I don't think we need to take pot shots because the Cavs are down. We don't need to say the NBA is some broken system that will never uh, work in this town again because that, to me, worries me about mm-hmm. the future of sports. And, you know, we had the CEO, and I know I'm getting off the topic, but I had the CEO – of the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission, uh, David Gilbert in studio last week, and he's a guy charged with bringing all these huge events. And he made a point that will stick with me forever. And he said, if you redraw the map of Cleveland tomorrow with its you know, complexities and certain things that hamstring the economy and, and just some overall issues with the area in general, mm-hmm. he said that you probably would not get three sports teams. You would not have a baseball, basketball, and football team. And so we're very blessed to have all of those. And so I always have that in the back of my mind. Remember that when even when we're down on the Cavs and when we're down on the Browns and when we're down on the Indians, that doesn't mean that we throw our hands up in the air and say we hate these sports and we hate the systems and we think they are stacked against us. We still have to support those teams. That doesn't mean we need to be myopic and say that, hey, you know what, when the Browns are terrible for 30 years, uh, that that you know, we're, we're just going to give them carte blanche. But at the same time, we need to support these teams because it's very fundamental for what we are as a people in Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I don't blame people for, like, when it comes to the Cavs and, and looking at their young guys, I, I don't blame people for kind of looking at what's tangible and, like, not trying to get their hopes up too much. Because, I, I mean, as sports fans, we know the pain that can come from that hope. Um, but when, when I look at this team, like Darius Garland, it's, it's almost the opposite of what Ethan Strauss says when he says fat is just potential in hiding. Um, it's, that guy just needs to add some strength. Like I, I look at him and he's a high school kid that did not have a, a summer uh, to really work on his body. We, we've seen the difference that uh, the strength and conditioning has had on Colin Sexton. And um, mm. even though he definitely has his flaws, um, I, I think it'd be hard to say that he hasn't taken a, a step forward this season. Mm-hmm. I, and even if you look at, and, and my favorite comparison to make is looking at Garland's rookie season compared to someone like Kemba Walker, who spent two years in college and he, he's having a better rookie season. Um, KPJ, he reminds me so much of Jimmy Butler, not only in where they were picked, 30th overall chip on their shoulder, but just a guy that has that kind of legitimate two-way impact um and and then Sexton I for all his warts he's proven that he can be a legitimate scorer uh you talked about looking at the January stats for Sexton the the kind of line that I like to draw is that 
December 23rd date where Jordan Clarkson was traded because that was a time where Kobe Altman basically said, okay, we're going to open things up for these three guards and, and give them a run. And Sexton is, has had 22 points per game on above or at league average true shooting percentage. And I kind of want to get your thoughts on him because as you mentioned before, um, you've obviously been critical of Sexton and, and I have as well. Um, but I, I just want to get your thoughts on if you do feel like there's been meaningful growth from his game from last season to this season. Um, a hundred percent. I do think there's absolutely been growth. I, I try to talk about this all the time. Like I looked at him, his rookie year, and I did something that I think a lot of basketball fans sometimes make the mistake of. And I, I just wrote the guy off. I said, that guy will never be a winning basketball player in the NBA. It's just not happening. He is going to get, um, on the defensive side of the floor, he is just going to get toyed with on offense uh, because he's not able to read and react and not see the game at a level. Um, he's just going to have these troubles forever. Mm -hmm. And his size is going to be so inhibiting that where will he ever be a, a winning plus basketball player? And I got to say, like, I don't, I don't know how much of that has changed those overarching opinions what I have noticed, and last night I saw this a ton, and I've, I've made mention of this the last two months, a willing passer. He needed to become a willing passer. I'm not even saying you need to be Jason Kidd or you need to be a creative passer or LeBron James being able to throw those incredible seal-off diagonals uh, to get guys wide open threes. Like, that's probably not, let's be honest with ourselves, probably not going to be Colin Sexton. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I know that guys change, and you're right. Victor Oladipo made these huge leaps. There are players that make these leaps. Maybe that's him. He works his butt off. The guy has a body of a free safety in the NFL. I love that about him. His motor is so much better than most guys in the NBA, and he's on a losing team. So the fact that he hasn't quit when so many guys in that situation have quit, those are all bonuses for Colin Sexton. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, you know, there are going to be certain restrictions that are just going to hold him back. And I'm waiting to see what happens. When does the rest of the league, when do they start to adjust to what he's doing well? Mm -hmm. So he's hitting more threes. He's been, you know, inconsistent month to month. He has these months where he's, and if you look, you even go back to his rookie year. He has these months where he really hits these threes at a pretty good rate. And then he has others where he is hitting the backboard and yeah. he is way off, which means his fundamentals are off, but shows you that he's working on those things. At what point, our defense is going to say, look, we have to take away what Colin Sexton does. It has not happened yet because teams are just beating the Cavs. It's as simple as that. Why would you look at film and obsess about film, which is what the good teams do in this league against really good opponents, and say we need to allow this because there's only so much we can stop. With the Cavs, they can say right now, we'll allow Colin Sexton. Uh, we'll go under every screen. If he's going to make threes, hey, we'll, we'll tip our cap. And at the same time, even if he makes threes, we're probably still going to beat the Cavs. Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm noticing. And so to really find out about players like Colin and any players on a, on a bad team, you have to really see them in the meat grinder. And I just don't know when the Cavs are going to be in that. And so the biggest complaint I get all the time from people on social media is they'll just give me the age of a player, right? They'll just say, Colin Sexton is this, this many years old. <laughs> you know, yes. Darius Garland's this many years old. But I've encountered that for sure. Yeah, and the only thing I'll remind everybody is, hey, the Cavs every day have to evaluate these guys. 
they can never just sit on their evaluations from a week ago or a month ago or two months ago. Like maybe the Celtics with, you know, Tatum can say, yeah, we think we have a good superstar. We think we have that guy. But how many teams can actually do that with young players in this league? Okay, look at Doncic. But you know what? The Atlanta Hawks have to seriously talk about Trey Young's, his advantages and his disadvantages because mm-hmm. they have to team build around that, right? Yeah. Do they not? They right, know which Trey- is why that they pursued a center because they said, hey, John Collins is not going to cut it defensively as a center if we're building around Trey Young. So they went out and got Clint Capella. Right. Oh, it's a great point. And they have to think about the deficiencies. They know Trey Young's never going to be a lead defensive player. You know, the right. Warriors, the Warriors know that for all the greatness of Steph Curry, and I know these will be fighting words on this podcast, and I know you're, you're as good of a troll uh, in <laughs> basketball as I am in everything else, uh, and you like to take your pot shots at Steph. Steph has some defensive playmaking but that is not how you would draw up a defensive player if you are a, a skilled Jeff Van Gundy-like defensive coach in the NBA. That's not how you would picture one. No, so that, you that's, to... that's what I would hope for Darius Garland, basically, who a player that doesn't really have defensive tools, um, at least be in the right position defensively, right? Like know where you need to be, and that way guys can expose you to an extent, but Defending point guards is always kind of a team proposition. Colin Sexton is different, though, because Colin Sexton, I actually want to see more from him defensively. And as he gets older, I think that's going to be something that's more and more fair to expect, especially if he ends up playing on the second unit where he's defending primarily point guards instead of going up against shooting guards. But he's he's got a 6'8", 6'9", wingspan, and you're seeing with the Rockets, a large wingspan and can be a viable replacement for height. Uh, George Hill's a great example, or Tony Allen, um, Eric Bledsoe, all these guys that have those large wingspans. Um, But obviously, he's still got a long way to go. I I would agree. I think uh, he, to me, it seems like he thinks a little bit too much. And remember, this is a guy, it was well chronicled. I mean, what was he, a 4.0 student at Alabama? Uh, I, you know, Colin Sexton, I think he has it in him. I would almost think that Colin, in a weird way, uh, at this stage of his career, while he's still very young, could almost be a rover, could be a gambler, where, okay, sometimes he'll make some bad choices and give up some backdoor layups, but at the same time, he might be able to go get some steals. He might be able to snatch a pass from an unassuming, unexpecting post player who mm-hmm. thinks he can make an easy diagonal, and there's Colin waiting there, ready to, to snatch it and go the other way. And who's going to stop Colin Sexton in the open floor? Right. That's the one thing I think we've all seen from him. That guy is as quick, coast-to-coast, coast, as anybody in the NBA. And that, that you know, offensively, that's why he gets so dejected at the amount of times he gets his shot blocked, because he gets by every primary defender. I don't see anybody hanging with Colin Sexton. So the, the, the ability is there, and I've said this time and time again, Colin's way better already than I thought he would be. The only thing is, I don't know right now with his defensive liabilities, he almost needs to be Trey Young offensively to make up for some of those, right. especially when paired with somebody like Darius Garland, who played so few games in college, has so little coaching, uh, all apologies to, to Beeline, but has so little coaching in his professional career that the two of them together, man, you've got to really be a dynamo offensively to make up for it. And while you're right, his true shooting numbers are above league average. 
his numbers in January have taken a step forward. He's been more of a willing passer. He's been knocking down some of those open threes when defenses continuously go below. But he almost has to be so much better than that even to make up for how bad him and his defensive uh, backcourt mate are defensively. No, I, I, I agree. And, and the big thing, too, it doesn't matter – how good they are defensively, you need more support in the front court, especially if he's going to be a, a rover or things like that. Um, I, I feel like Sexton can actually be a pretty good on-ball defender, but his off-ball mm. defense, his defense was actually better to start the season. And I feel like as the year's gone on, he's just kind of given up on that end. And there, there's a massive learning curve for guards. Easy to do, by the way. Let's look, yeah, sorry to cut you off. Easy to do. I mean, let's look back at Kyrie Irving. And I had the same complaints about Kyrie. I mean, Kyrie would do these things offensively in his first few years on really bad Cavs teams or would take your breath away. And you would say, my God, there aren't guys finishing like this. And remember, Kyrie wasn't exactly getting to the foul line, which was a big complaint of mine about Colin Sexton. And mm-hmm. in recent games, I mean, he did have some games where he – put together eight free throws. I think he had nine in one. I think he had six in another, and that's the, the, those are really good signs. Kyrie really liked to avoid contact, but you would see the special traits, uh, ability to get a shot off at any point. We saw that from day one. Uh, his ability to go full speed ahead, change direction, and still put a ball high off the glass around uh, an imposing defender who would try to block his shot and still be able to finish those moves. You know, I don't know that that will be Colin Sexton. I, no. I, maybe it's not. He's got to make up for it in other areas. But what you just said is so true about young players on bad teams that at some point, are we really going to buy into the team defensive scheme when we are honing in on a probably a two C, a two, a two, a, a, you know, number two in the playoff pecking order uh, yeah. when it comes to a lottery? I mean, let's be honest. No, no, exactly. And I I think that's one of those reasons why you do want to have some veterans around. Um, I I think to some extent this season's kind of been a trying to establish proof of concept on what veterans will buy in, which guys are invested in the rebuild, and which the team will have to move on from. And obviously Kevin Love has kind of uh, made it very clear which category he's fallen into. Tristan Thompson uh, has been bought into the rebuild and I, I give him a lot of credit for how hard he's playing right now and we'll get into him and Drummond a little bit later because uh, I, I do want to get there um, but yeah I, I agree and, and the thing with Sexton's passing recently I, I know people will point to his age as you mentioned earlier but I feel like vision's one of those things that you can't really teach in the same way that you can uh, add a jump shot. Like, I don't think there's really a precedent for somebody that doesn't have great vision um, developing that the same way you have the Jason Kidd example for a three-point shot, for example. But what I am seeing from him now is he's understanding that he can get past his primary defender in most matchups. And when he's met by two guys at the rim, he's doing the mental math now. He's saying, all right, I'm past one guy. There's two guys in front of me that earlier in the season would have blocked my shot at the rip. <laughs> Somebody has to be open. And now he's doing a better job of finding those guys, which it actually is kind of a nice complimentary skill set to have along Darius Garland, who's probably the only guy that kind of has that pure point guard DNA and can get the team into their sets. So if Sexton can do at least that, along with kind of maintaining the scoring at this rate. I don't know if he's always going to get the same number of minutes, but if he can do that, 
I, I do think it makes it a lot easier to fit him into a, a team scheme, whether it be as a starting combo guard alongside a playmaking wing, uh, whether it's coming off the bench as a sixth man. Um, but no matter what the combination is or wherever he starts, as long as Sexton, Garland, and KPJ are on the team together, they have to learn how to play well with each other because there's always going to be at least 13, 14, 15 minutes that those guys are going to be playing together just because there's 48 minutes in a game. Boy, I thought one thing that I saw from Colin last night, and I've seen in recent games, is the drop-off, which is I'm going full speed ahead. I'm beating my guy off the dribble. I may not be able to get my shot off. I don't really want to careen into bodies. I don't want to put my body at risk to that level. You know, very, very non-Russell Westbrook-esque. And just the Jeff Teague drop-off. He did that yesterday. Larry Nance Jr. was a recipient of a few of those. I was going to say, Nance seems to be the guy that he he has the best chemistry with for that play. Absolutely. And what is that? That's Larry Nance Jr. knowing, hey, I I can be the recipient of some of these and be the beneficiary of some of these by reading how he's going to blow his guy out of the water off the dribble. And I can't express this enough. And maybe this is why I'm so hard on Colin because I watch him crush these guys off the dribble. I mean, there are very few guys that can stay with him. I know there was a memorable moment with him and Zion Williamson earlier in the year. You know, I was, I was very happy to be able to attend that game and see him and Zion. And it was just crazy to see Zion. But Zion's a unicorn. I mean, he's a freak of nature. Yeah. I'm, not put, I'm not putting too many guys in that category uh, because he was able to kind of stay in front of Colin on a few drives and the whole crowd went crazy. But every other game, all I do is see uh, Colin just blow by guys. So it's going to be up to other players. It's also going to be up to the coaches. Hey, if this is happening, then where are guys on the court? You know, it's, it's easy to play with LeBron James at this point. Just go spot up in your corners. You know, Kyle Korver got that right uh, immediately. Hey, I know where I can be. I know where I can be, and I know where he's going to find me. I know where I'm going to get a wide-open jump shot. And, you know, uh, don't bring up that, that game where we all know against Golden State he should have hit one in the corner. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Kevin Durant comes up and uh, hits a, buries a three in LeBron's face. We'll I, I like that. that you told me not to bring it up while bringing it up and, and causing totally me emotional distress. Up. Boy, can you tell me it still bothers me to this day because that was <laughs> that game that Cavs absolutely should have won. Uh, but either way, that's what's going to be the next rung of this Cavaliers team. And if they're not going to go and hire a new coach and it's going to be J.B. Bickerstaff, all right, let's see what your guys do. Let's stop worrying about what we can't do and let's see what we can do. You have a point guard that can get by anybody. So let's get some shooters around that guy who know where to be. Let's get a, a, a crasher, a, you know, you want to talk about somebody who can really attack the rim. Let's, let's understand that you can benefit from somebody like Colin doing that. And even in his limited sight and his limited passing abilities, he has started to find some guys. So that could be part of the offense, whether he's a starter or, you know, coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about the guys he's beating are starters. So maybe someday, and I know people don't want to hear this, but let's say Colin's the guy that comes off the bench. Who in the hell is going to be able to stay in front of that guy? Oh, no, absolutely. And to me, the the growth in his passing, like I I don't need him to be someone that can run an offense. And uh, lately the the assist percentages have been good. I think in the last 15 games, it it was something like 16% with Garland on and like 26% with him off, which is great. Um, but to me, if he can be a reliable scorer, 
a willing passer that finds the open man, but doesn't necessarily pass guys open because there is that distinction in the NBA um, and, and score at this rate. He can kind of be like that Bledsoe Lou Williams hybrid off the bench. And I, I think the environment is starting to be a little more conducive for these guys showing what their strengths are. And you mentioned JB, one of the most welcome changes, and we saw it last night uh, in particular with Kevin Porter Jr., but we're actually running pick and roll now. Um, and and Bayline, there, there's just so much of those high handoffs, basically using Tristan Thompson as like an Al Horford in this offense. Uh, handoffs above the three-point line, which really aren't generating a lot of looks. Colin Sexton, one of his one of his few great strengths in college was actually scoring out of the pick and roll, um, getting free from his guy, attacking the basket, and making decisions to either score or drop it off. Um, uh, Darius Garland should be a great pick and roll player. Kevin Porter Jr. should be a very good pick and roll player. And it's got Tristan Thompson back into that rim-running mentality. It had Larry Nance in that rim-running mentality. And the fact that Drummond wasn't doing it got him pulled from the game. It's just so refreshing to see more of just those meat and potatoes NBA sets into the offense. Well, I would agree with that. Um, Look, I don't want to sit here and just crush everything Beeline did. I wasn't thrilled with the hire at the time. At the same time, I wasn't thrilled with the behavior of a lot of the Cavs players, not just the young guys. Who you would yeah, expect. sorry to cut you off, but Carter and I basically agreed on the last podcast that we'd probably assign it 60-40 uh, Bayline to the players because the players just, they did not respond well. And I, I think it is important to note that. Yeah, and in this league, uh, look, you could hire Phil Jackson tomorrow. You could hire Greg Popovich tomorrow. If the young players and the veterans, if the two of them together decide they're not going to play for a guy, it doesn't matter the cachet. It really doesn't uh, in this day and age, and that's unfortunate. Uh, but either way, and you know what? And I'm not going to dwell on Beeline forever. You know, whether or not we're going to put that on Altman or whether we're going to put that on Dan Gilbert. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just not going to lose sleep over it long term. In the end, the succession plan was eventually going to be Bickerstaff. Yes, it look, makes them look bad, and the PR is going to be bad for this team, and no one <laughs> yes. is going to – yeah, no one's going to trust the Cavs without LeBron James until they get this right. I mean, that's just a reality. I say the same thing about the Browns. No one's going to trust the Browns until they start winning games. And I think we just have to accept that. And I don't think we can sit there and get mad when Charles Barkley rips us on national television. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Bill Simmons rips the Browns, if any of these people do this, I just, I think we just have to eventually sit there and take it. I know people don't want to hear that. It sucks. We like to trash talk. We like to have fun with some of that and, and boast that we think our teams are going to turn the corner. Mm-hmm. But until they do it, you know what? It's going to be speak softly, carry a big stick. And that's just going to be uh, the way this goes forward. Now, you, you talked about some of that action, especially at the top of the key with Porter. You know, I have made a weird comparison that people aren't going to want to hear because what we don't do in sports is we don't compare black players to European players or white players. Mm-hmm. But and he'll never. I don't know that Kevin Porter Jr. is ever going to have the vision of Manu Ginobili because that's what made Manu so special, oh, made him extra dangerous. I like that. Yeah. But the feet. I just want you to watch the feet. He gets going with his feet, where it almost seems like he is a roadrunner back there while he is deciding when he is starting to pick out his lanes and his attack angles. He gets that those feet moving, and you can see defenders are almost. They, 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 they're almost just sitting there unable to stop it. 
They don't know which direction he's going to go. They know he has this herky-jerky, weird release, low release, which you wouldn't teach anybody, just like Manu Ginobili, right? Would you ever teach Manu Ginobili's shooting form in a class? Would you ever teach Antoine Jameson's? You know, shooting for him. Kevin Martin. Yeah. Kevin Martin. Oh, my God. And, and of course, he got to – he lived at the foul line for years. And people forget about just how, how destructive he was. It's a great example. But in this case, Porter has the ability, and I was so thrilled to see him get to the foul line last night. And he got to the foul line last night because not only was he aggressive, but because he threw defenders off with his jab step, with his timing, and his herky-jerky nature. And he's got these long arms. I'm just telling you, when he learns to harness those skills, it could be scary. Now, I'm not guaranteeing it because he's very young. There's a reason he wasn't a top five draft pick and he went where he went. So it's not that I'm saying that I'm expecting this. But to see a guy with that ability, and I know he's 6'5", be great if he was 6'8", but he's 6'5", <laughs> but he plays like a guy to me that is 6'7". He really does. Oh, and yeah. I think that's important. And, and and he seems to be able to get strong. Like you, you can tell, his frame can support muscle, and often that that's one of the biggest determining factors there on uh, what positions you can play. I think ultimately he's a two-three uh, that that can sure. play some three. Um, I, I I really do like that comp. And one thing, hey, can I, I tell do- you real quick? I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. I watched him against James Harden. Now James Harden went off on us, as so many players have. He played really good positional defense there. I have to say there was a clear difference. I watched that game. I was there. I sat there, and I watched James Harden pick on everybody. And you know what? He, in totality, he also picked on Kevin Porter Jr. Yeah. Like Kevin Porter yeah. made him work. You could tell James Harden had to, had to think a little bit more. He had to be a little bit more programmed and say, you know what? This isn't going to be as easy as I thought. And, yeah, he still had his step-back threes. He still got into his body and created some fouls. But I'm telling you, the difference was night and day in watching a guy as skilled as anybody in the league, which is James Harden, go up against uh, Kevin Porter Jr. compared to the other guards he went up against. Yeah, the the biggest thing that night for me was, and and he got frustrated a few times where he contested a shot perfectly and Harden just hit it, which he tends to do. Um him not fouling Harden a whole lot in that game was impressive to me because that is kind of one of the biggest things he struggled with. And I appreciate him getting a lot of fouls in, in this rookie season because it always comes out of effort. And that was one of the biggest question marks. Uh, Trevor Magnotti, who is one of the best draft experts out there, um, friend of the podcast, um, he mentioned that in a redraft scenario, what he's shown on defense would really change kind of um, how he would be projected in, in a lot of mocks and where he would rank him. Um, I, I took a bit of a victory lap um, recently because I, before the season, Carter and I were trying to rank floors and ceilings. And right now I, I think Sexton probably has the highest floor out of any of the three guards um, just because I, I think he's already proven that he can be a high volume scorer in the NBA. But I, I said that KPJ likely has the highest ceiling. And I think you're seeing more and more of that as he continues to improve through the season. One thing I really do want to get your thoughts on, though, is with this guard rotation, do you are you okay with Garland and Sexton starting together for the remainder of the season? Do you want to see a change, or do you like what Bickerstaff has been doing these first three games? 
Yeah, I got to say, I haven't made a big deal out of it. Uh, I did love the lineup they closed with, but it's easy to say that when it works, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's easy yeah. to get that instant validation. And I did it. I did a victory lap yesterday, and I said, this is a lineup I wanted to see. Well, yeah, it worked last night. And then that, that's, people, that's half the fun of being a fan, right? Right. And some people rightfully point out, like, oh, I didn't hear from you when Porter had the bad games. And Porter's <laughs> had plenty of bad games. But you know what I said? I, I was honest. I said, I was there, and I was drinking alcohol, and I enjoyed it, and I was high-fiving strangers. So I'm allowed to be a fan once in a while, as much as I crush fans for being fans. I was a fan last night, and it was fun to see. And, yeah, is he going to be able to just go out there at times one-on-five and uh, make those line-drive three-pointers? Probably not. That's probably not going to be a recipe for success, but uh, we have to understand where the Cavs' lot in life is at this point. Uh, as far as they need to make huge sweeping moves in the lineup, you know, I didn't crush the Chetty signing. I'm very disappointed in what I've seen from him, even though his numbers have been up from three-point range, really? right? Have they okay. not? I mean, you've been, you've been on that, but just, just in watching it. So this is, this is hard to explain as a basketball fan. I know you, you watch as much basketball as anybody, mm-hmm. and the guys that come on your podcast watch. And I used an example today about Andre Drummond. So I said – Man, I watch Andre Drummond in person. I've watched him since UConn. I covered some of the games when he was at UConn in my former days, the college basketball reporter. And I watched this guy who has all the talent in the world and probably not as much talent as DeMarcus Cousins. Would you agree? He's, he, he's probably in DeMarcus Cousins' prime. Do you, think, <laughs> do you think he's even had the talent that DeMarcus Cousins has had? Because I do not think he has. Anthony, you're, you're going to die at this. So in, in my show notes preparing for this – I have thoughts on Drummond, and then uh, I'm just going to read out kind of my uh, what I have scribbled here. To me, he's one of those bigs that likely isn't as skilled as he thinks, but he could be a monster by simplifying his game. That's something guys like he, DeAndre Jordan, or early career Boogie Cousins seemed hesitant to do. <laughs> so, so DeMarcus Cousins, I would watch that guy go, and again, that's another guy I covered in college. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins routinely could go 25 and 10, 25 and 12, 25 and 15. And you look and go, man, this guy had no impact on the basketball game. Mm-hmm. And there are some Cavs fans that go, what are you talking about when I say that about Andre Drummond? And I said, you know what? I actually can't sit here and be able to give grand philosophies about this and give my value judgments. I, I'll never be able to explain to people what I see and why I see it and how I feel it. It's a weird feel. And this almost seems very soccer-esque, right? European football, like when when you are probably a much bigger fan than I am, but you either know it or you don't. And when I watch Andre Drummond in person, I say, man, that guy is having no impact on wins and losses. And I don't know that he ever will. Finally, think about what Dwight Howard was able to do finally this year. And by the way, Dwight Howard did have impact on wins and losses earlier in his career. People will people forget. I mean, we all should know as Cavs oh, fans. Yeah, absolutely. First ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> he definitely had an impact. And yet, and yet, yet people under the age of thirty will go, "What are you talking about, Dwight Howard? He's been a laughing stock." And Dwight Howard came in this year. He realized that he didn't need to be the muscle man. He could kind of just fit into a role with the Lakers. I know he didn't play much in that Celtics game, but there have been games this year where I'm like, "Finally, it took all this time." But Dwight Howard knows what he is at this point in his career. He knows where the evolution of basketball has been. He knows how his old school style of post-ups are antiquated in today's NBA parlance. And he's found a role. And you Mm -hmm. know what? Dwight Howard in a certain series is going to come through huge for this Laker team. Like, I I can count on it. I really think so. 
Mm-hmm. I, I watch Andre Drummond, and I just see that he is a guy who's going to protect the rim when he wants to on certain possessions. I don't know why he's shooting threes, I got to tell you. I know he hit two the other night. I don't want to see it. I don't know why the Cavs organization. It, is okay it feels with like it. apathy. I, I, I said it, it reminds me, or it lets me know what the Andrew Bynum practice looked like, where he just launched threes. Because <laughs> what it really is, is it, he's just kind of floating out there. And you look at the, the videos of those guys um, practicing threes and, uh, b- before games and, and in warm ups and whatnot. He's doing it at half speed. And then he, but when I look at it in game, it's happening at that exact same speed. He's just standing <laughs> out there. The defense isn't doing anything. They're, They're not never reacting gonna to it. They're never going to come out and guard him. And They're he's launching this slow shot. It, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's frustrating. So I, I think the one benefit here is this is case number one of why you don't draft Wiseman this year. Um, because Wiseman is less skilled offensively. He's not mobile on defense. He doesn't have a whole lot of side-to-side quickness. And those type of bigs that can't come out and defend guys are going to be an issue defensively. They will help you some nights, but even Rudy Gobert, who is one of the best defensive players in the league and far, 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 far better than Andre Drummond, when you get further in the playoffs and they make you leave the paint defensively, you start to see some holes and cracks in that defense and Drummond laying off of Bam Adebayo. Sure. You're daring him to shoot. And that's maybe a smart decision in some ways. It's also opening up passing lanes for him to find cutters, to gain momentum ahead of team as he's coming at you. And that was a huge problem in the first game against the heat. I I do think I'm, all for them giving up that second round pick to get a half year or year and a half rental on Drummond. It's a much better option than throwing him a contract and then being stuck with it. But I do think that this can be somewhat instructive and it wouldn't even shock me if we go into the summer and Drummond gets signed and traded out of town and Mm. you give an extension to Tristan Thompson, who's going to do the rim running at probably a third of the cost. Boy, that would be interesting. Uh, where would you compare? And I'll just ask you because I know we're a little off topic, but when you look at Wiseman, how would you compare him to DeAndre Aiden from a few years ago? He, he's Aiden without the offensive polish. Like Aiden is very, very skilled offensively. Um, I don't see that with Wiseman. I, he's, completely, I he's completely reliant on his physical gifts. I would totally agree with you, and I know it's tough at a guy that age uh, try to project that. But you know, coming back to the discussion about Andre Drummond, you know, when they made the deal, you know, we Ken and I oftentimes on the morning show on night two three the fan, we will call each other out for being on the fence on something, because normally we have big bold opinions, right? I mean, that's what you got to have. That's why we have the job. Yeah, that, uh, that's that's radio. <laughs> that is that's radio. That's TV these days. Unfortunately, that's why. Even though I thought uh, Bomani Jones and uh, Pablo Torre did have big opinions, uh, maybe not big enough to be able mm. to exist in you know this 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 world. Yeah, uh, they they of, have conversations instead of yelling at each other. Like, uh, yeah, a little too academic maybe for the the average person uh, without trying to sound condescending. <laughs> but I, I I have to tell you, like Ken and I, Ken Ken put me he he put me under the microscope when we were talking about these things on Andre Drummond and he said, well, what's your big opinion? I mean, you either hate it or you like it. I mean, come on, come on, Lima. This is a, you're, you're the guy that always hates or likes everything. What do you, what do you, what do you think here on Andre Drummond? And I said, eh, I guess I'm fine, <laughs> which is 
so atypical for me. I just know that I don't think Andre Drummond is ever going to be a guy that's going to sit there and overtime. Yeah, there will be a game. You know, you saw it the other night against Phoenix when he is, I think the last game he played for Detroit, he went off. I think he had 30 and 18 or something mm-hmm. like that. He's always been capable of having those nights. But against a skilled team that has playoffs on the mind, I mean, can you imagine in a playoff series, teams are going to pick on Andre Drummond. I mean, J.B. Bickerstaff, there's a reason that Drummond was benched. Not because he doesn't like Andre Drummond. Not because he thinks Drummond is a useless basketball player. But he knew against Miami and the rotations they had that they were going to use Drummond against them, and most likely they would have lost the game had they had Drummond out there. No, and and that's the, the biggest thing that I'm actually really enjoying with Bickerstaff is right now what we're seeing is everybody's being held to a different level of accountability. And because Bickerstaff is an NBA lifer, um, I, I think that he has a little bit more cachet to pull that off. But what we're seeing right now, and even looking back since the Clarkson trade, Kevin Porter Jr., for example, he's playing about 27 minutes a night, 13 to 14 with Garland, 13 to 14 with Sexton. Um, and we've seen in these games, these guards are all getting an opportunity in every single game. They're getting basically starters minutes. And whichever combination of the three is working the best on any given night, those are the guys that are going to close out the game. Those are the guys that their minutes are going to go from 28 to 35. And that's how you create accountability while also still prioritizing the development of your youth. So it's kind of a win-win situation for Bickerstaff, but it's also happening with the bigs. If any of those guys aren't playing hard, uh, which was Drummond last night, Tristan Thompson, if he's outplaying him, he's going to close the game. And it, maybe this could be something that could be a turning point for Drummond. Maybe it's a little too far gone. I think he's the best player on this team, but he doesn't apply himself consistently in, in the right way. If he can simplify his game, be that rim runner, you can live with him not being able to really leave the paint defensively, in, in my opinion. Um, but I, I, I do think that, being that kind of rim runner, uh, utilizing his passing. I, I don't think it's unfair to say that he can contribute to winning because I, I do still remember prior to the Blake Griffin trade, him getting the Pistons to the playoffs as their best player, giving the Cavs a tough series, even though it was a sweep. Um, Tobias Harris was on that team. A, a few other guys, Stanley Johnson, I remember he had the series oh, of his life. Absolutely. Um, but I'll – I do think that now you almost Drummond, reminded if he, me of Ray. If he wants, yeah, if he wants, go ahead. You almost reminded me of uh, Skip to my Lou Ray for Alston back in the day. Oh, see, now you're bringing up the most, <laughs> the two most painful shots in in my whole Cavs life is Corver <laughs> missing the three and Ray for Alston banking one. So unbelievable! Th- thank you, thank you so much for doing that. But yeah, it, if Drummond wants to earn a large next contract he might have to do some things that make him a little bit uncomfortable and he's going to have to be accountable on this team. Even though he's heading into a player option summer, he's going to have to outplay Tristan Thompson, go out there and do it. You're, you're going to be held just as accountable as the three guards. Yeah. And just to watch guys battle the guys that really want to battle, like you'll see Andre Drummond in a game where he's like, Oh, wait a second. I've got a guy as big as me that I'm going up against. Like, Joel Embiid, I have to battle tonight. But the difference is Tristan Thompson does that every night. Tristan Thompson decides I'm going to be the alpha male that I know what my role is. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. 
And Andre Drummond, I don't know that he's ever been that guy. Now, you can blame the situation in Detroit. Look, we know firsthand as Cavs fans over the years, we know that it's very easy to get disinterested in what, what, what you're ultimately your organization is trying to achieve when you're out of the playoff on, you know, early in the season. So there is part of that where if you're a Cavs fan, you want to say, hey, when they take chances on a guy like Andre Drummond, and they, they did take a chance, maybe we can be the organization that could turn them around. Unfortunately, they just don't have the reputation right now or the cachet to be able to, to, to boast that they're going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But I do like taking steps in those directions because if you establish a consistent level of professionalism that you require from all of the players and a certain effort level and buy-in, maybe some veterans are going to scoff at that and say, okay, this is Cleveland. I, I don't have to take this seriously. But I, I do think that it gives you a little bit more strength to hold the young players to that standard. And the veterans that aren't buying in, even though everyone is being held to the same standard, those are the guys that you ship off and you bring in other guys that will behave in a professional manner. And I think that's how you start to turn things around and establish a culture. Because Cleveland, we're, we're not going to be a situation where free agents are really going to flock to Cleveland, where you're not going to get tier one free agents. But what you can be, and I've talked about this all year, is you can turn the perception of your team around you can develop the existing talent you have similar to what Toronto did develop that talent. And when you've done that, you can cash those guys in, go find a disgruntled star. Or if your young guys are attractive enough to play with guys will want to go to that market to play with certain guys. All right, and so I, I want to ask you, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. We had Brian Scalabrini on and I have to say of all the broadcasters that most fans don't really think about uh, top of mind, I was blown away by, like, the homework he did on a Cavs team, which, let's be honest, how many national guys are really following the Cavs? And I know he does Celtics games, and he's been on NBA TV. I, I did listen that. to that interview. It was very good. Okay, so he said something that, like, most people would eye-roll in Cleveland. He's like, I'm surprised Colin Sexton wasn't dealt the deadline. But my larger question is not about whether, you know, that was ever going to happen, which I didn't think it was ever going to happen, but maybe we're closer to the situation than somebody like Brian Scalabrini. The question is now, at what point would the Cavs think about pivoting from their nucleus right now? Like, let's say they get the lot of luck. And unfortunately, I have run that damn tankathon every it's day rough. on the radio. It's rough. It never comes up number one. I have done this over 30 times. I've gotten five more than I've gotten two. But I never get number one. But so let's just say, for instance, they get number one. I told Ken today. I've seen enough college basketball this year. There are no guarantees. That doesn't mean there aren't great players that can be uh, that 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 you can draft. You know, in this draft, it happens all the time. Just because guys aren't guarantees, Andrew Luck like guarantees, right? Yeah. Anthony Davis like guarantees. Just because it doesn't seem like there's a guarantee, that doesn't mean there aren't great players in this draft. There are great players in every draft. Yeah. With all of that said, I said if they get the number one pick, you hand in the card. It's done. It's Anthony Edwards. Now, do I think Anthony Edwards is a guaranteed great player? No, not mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. But he, to me, is the clear number one. I think there's actually a gap between him and the rest. Either mm-hmm. way, whether you agree or disagree with that, if they take Anthony Edwards, at what point are the Cavs pivoting with some of the players they have? 
Well, I, I, I think we, we had heard some rumblings that, that Sexton was, at least they were listening to some offers on that. And who knows, maybe if you can pair him with a Kevin Love and get a young player that fits with the other guys, that's something they would consider. Um, one, one thing that I've heard with Edwards is because of his strength, there, there's some optimism that he'd be able to defend threes. He's not defending anybody right now. He, he's not playing particularly well. Um, but I, I don't think you'd be forced to move, make that move right away. A, obviously, you'd evaluate where guys are looking at, whether or not um, after the summer to see if Garland's added strength and if he looks like he's ready to take a step, how KPJ has developed, whether he's continued to grow because he's still just 19 years old, um, and that's something that's possible. Um, but I, I do think that that kind of forces your hand because that's yet another ball-dominant guy and a team full of guys that need the ball. And I, I think they're going to be put in better positions for the rest of this season. Um, as I alluded to or mentioned earlier, um, running more pick and roll, I, I think that's going to help them out a lot. But I, I do think that that kind of forces their hand. Um, and they, they have to make some tough decisions at that point. Like, put it this way, Andrew Wiggins has been essentially the same player as almost day one, right? Yeah. So he came into the league very young, and he had all this athleticism, and we thought he had all this talent. I thought he'd be a great on-the-ball defender. He was none of that for so long. Yeah, yep. So, so read it wrong. But there probably were times where the Minnesota Timberwolves could have traded him, and just based on his potential ceiling and his potential overall, they could have pivoted. They never They, they didn't want to trade him for Kyrie. Remember that? Right, which is amazing when you think about it. Absolutely. So when you think about these things, and I, I don't know what Colin Sexton is going to be five years from now. I just don't know. Sometimes it all depends on situation. It also depends on what a player does when he gets his next contract. You know, you never truly know these things. Uh, we always think this is a science. It's not. You have no idea. The, the NFL is king of that. Every time a defensive lineman gets a contract, you, a lot of them you never hear from them again. So the, these things are just things that is conjecture that you have to end up guessing on. With all that said, I, I truly wonder about this when I use the term pivoting. At what point organization says, you know what, we've got we've to move in a different direction. You know, I bring up Dennis Smith Jr. Now, I, I get the deal that he was involved in. But Dennis Smith Jr. was a player that all the potential in the world. How many mesmerizing dunks did he have in games that probably had fans in Dallas thinking, holy crap, this guy is going to be a superstar. He's going to be Russell Westbrook. Like, you, you know that there were people thinking that. Mm-hmm. And then they decide, you know what, we, this guy's totally they, – they look, they're around him more than we are, right? Just like our team is around Colin Sexton or around Garland or around Kevin Porter Jr. more than anybody else. So we know more about these guys than anybody. They decided, you know what, this is a year and a half in. We're going to move him. We're going to yeah. move him. Now, I understand their deal was different. It, it was very involved. But those are things that teams actually do. They do all the time in this league. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams won Rookie of the Year mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, right? Was it yeah. Philadelphia? Won yeah, it was Philadelphia. And, and I, I felt so vindicated saying that that was the most <laughs> fraudulent stat line I have ever seen the the entire and you know what I actually give them credit because they knew what they had in Michael Carter Williams and they did what they didn't have well well, exactly but they did everything they could to pump up his numbers knowing they were going to sell high that year and and I give them full credit for that 
So th this, this comes to a point where an organization has to decide, are they more keen on being right about a draft pick? Do they care more about making sure they win those PR battles? Or do they say, you know what, we know more about this guy than anybody else. And I'm not even being specific here. It might be Colin Sexton. It might be Garland. Yeah. It might be anybody. Yeah, exactly. But at what point do you decide to pivot? And those are the hard questions that bad teams have to be faced with all the time because you could all of a sudden be the Sacramento Kings where you lock in, you've got all your guys, and you're never good. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And to me, Edwards isn't that guy. Um, uh, Okongwu okay. is really high on my list. Um, if, if they were to take a guard, I, I kind of like Hayes' fit a, a little bit more for this team. Uh, Denny excites me as a kind of playmaking uh, 6'10 wing. Um, but yeah, it, Edwards just kind of freaks me out because it's just yet another ball-dominant guy yeah. that doesn't really try on defense and they're all flawed they're all significantly and, flawed yeah and the twist is he doesn't really have that outside shot so no um if they're all flawed or all have limited ceiling and i don't think there's anyone clearly in that start here i kind of it kind of makes me want to draft a little bit more towards fit although I, even in a vacuum even before starting from scratch um I don't know how much it would change that process, but yeah, they, they do have some decisions to make. And I, I think that starting to have a little bit more internal competition drives that process. I, I think now that guys seem to be buying in a little bit more, it makes it easier to evaluate. Okay. So now that they're actually trying to run what we want to run, we can see why it's failing. Um, we, we can see who is excelling, who's struggling, who's actually picking things up when before you could just kind of write it off as the guys aren't trying, they're not buying in. Now you can actually start to make more informed decisions. And, and I do think that that's a positive step forward for this team. I'm with you. I guess my, my only other question, and I think we could probably close on this is what do you think the Cavs are trying to do next year? I thought that you could make the argument, and I said this. Uh, we do something called Champions Pose. Uh, are you familiar with the Champions Pose? I am not. Uh, I'm more interested. The Champions Pose is something that it's almost from the 1950s where you raise your hands, you clench them, and you go to both sides of the shoulders to, uh, to, to say ultimate vindication, right? Yeah. You, you have been correct on something, and so few things I get to be correct on. Uh, but one of the things I said – Four weeks ago, I had Jason Lloyd again in studio. He joins us every Wednesday normally. And I said, Jason, are the Cavs going to get to a point where they're sick of the losing? The appetite for a Philadelphia-like rebuild uh, is not there. And they throw money at a guy that maybe no one else would throw money at. And could that guy be Andre Drummond? <laughs> and then eventually they end up trading for Andre Drummond. And I didn't see that going down like that. Uh, I thought it would be maybe the next offseason. Uh, but either way, they now have Andre Drummond on the team. I now wonder if they think that is a shortcut for them to get an eight seed that they are thinking next year with, I got to remind people this now, so this is where business comes into this and people think that sports is all about, Hey, on paper, we are going to delineate what our goals are short-term, long-term. Sometimes that paper gets torn up in a matter of moments and the three-year contracts, a lot of season ticket holders signed three years ago, they're up, right? They're up right now. Yeah, that means that that as an annuity for Dan Gilbert and the Cleveland Brown, or the Cleveland Cavs organization, that means there are going to be a lot of empty seats next year. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden, a panic sets in. 
There are season ticket reps. There are corporate sponsors. People forget about the business side of this, but it is also just as important sometimes as basketball ops. Do the Cavs take a shortcut this offseason to try to get the eighth seed? And I think that is going to be one of the biggest questions. So what that means is, are they going to throw some money as one of the few teams that actually will have money? Are they going to throw some money potentially at a, a stopgap free agent or someone who may not fit in in certain situations and the Cavs just throw money at them because they want to get an eight seed? I, I think there's a possibility to some extent. One thing that I think is important to note is that if Andre Drummond does opt in, that cap space goes away. Um, the Cavs would have the mid-level exception to play with, um, but for the most part, they wouldn't really be able to go out there and make a splash. Now, I, I do think that there's an increased likelihood that Kevin Love gets moved, and I, I think if he is moved, that kind of writes off any chance of making an eight seed. What I want to see is for them to – I want Kobe Altman to start to show – what he wants to build because it is the first summer where you actually have some flexibility the younger guys will have had some time in the league um i want them to be in a position that if those young guys are able to take the next step i would be okay with going for the playoffs in some um in some way but ultimately i want to the decision or not the decision but the deciding factor on whether or not they make playoffs to be, are these young guys taking a leap? I want it to be driven by them. And if Drummond's on this team, let's say Kevin Love's move, Drummond's the best player. Uh, you take Denny in the draft. Uh, you go out mm. and you sign like a Marvin Williams type uh, to, to fill in uh, as the other forward. If that's what your roster construction is, how successful they are is going to be determined by the play of the guards and it's going to be determined by whether or not those young guys are getting drumming the ball in the right areas. And if they are able to be the reason for that drive to the playoffs, I am absolutely fine with that because I do think um, turning things around and getting to the playoffs, even if your ceiling is the middle, I think that's such an improvement. And then you just, you draft and you develop no matter where you're picking from uh, with the new lottery odds, it's basically made it, kind of pointless to tank in the same way that the Sixers were. So I, I think trying to win should be the focus. I just think when they're relying on guys as young as their core is, that's just not a viable option. It's not likely to occur. So it is very easy for someone like me to be on the radio and say, like I did a few years ago, yeah, I want the Cavs to be bad for five straight years and have five lotto picks in the top five and then get good. It's very easy to say that. It's another thing to actually be there every day and be around a losing team when you have 41 home dates and 82 games and all that inventory. It costs and, your development. Like, you look at the Sixers. Yeah. Embiid and Simmons were not around during the tanking because they both – Embiid missed two years, Simmons missed one. Most of the guys that actually went through it did not develop as players. And I, I don't think – I, I think the Cavs should build towards the middle and figure it out from there. The problem with the, the Portland Trailblazers or the Atlanta Hawks is once they got to that middle, they were content with it. They, they didn't take the necessary risks to try to put themselves over the hump. The Cavs – Get to the middle, and let's start to figure things out from there. Yeah, the problem with Portland, I would say, is that they're in the Western Conference. Had they been in the Eastern Conference, 
Yeah, I mean, the Eastern Conference, they would have had a chance, I think, to actually get out one of those years. I still think the Cavs would have been better than them. I'm, I'm but, lower on them than you, but I, I can see why you'd make that case. In, in a, I mean, look, the, the, in the last year of the Cavs, I mean, the Boston Celtics almost beat them uh, in a best of seven when Terry Rozier was going off. And imagine oh, yeah, Terry we, we should have lost in the first round that year. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, imagine if, if Terry Rozier's doing that, what could Damian Lillard have done or CJ McCollum? But I get it. I get the point. So I guess that's, that's tough. It's such a tough question in the NBA. It's almost this is where I get why people are so down on the NBA in general, where you get to this middle – and you could potentially be in a purgatory forever. But I don't think the Cavs and their higher-ups or this fan base has an appetite to be bad for two more years. Yeah. And so it would not surprise me at all. Now, you mentioned uh, astutely cap space is going to be an issue. Now, that mid-level exception, which we don't talk a lot, uh, we haven't talked a lot about uh, this year or last year with the Cavs, that does come uh, very interesting and again, are guys going to want to sign with the Cavs if they can sign a mid-level with a contender? No. So you're, you're already down probably a peg mm-hmm. when it comes to who you'd be able to go get. But I have a feeling, I think, I think we agree on this, the Cavs are going to probably try all they can to make the eighth seed. Now, those are famous last words for past Cavs teams because we remember uh, when LeBron left the first time around, Dan Gilbert decided we were going to go all out and try to make the playoffs, and we were a disaster. <laughs> yes, and and obviously the Kyrie trade. The whole point of the Kyrie trade was to put us in position we weren't going to be left with our pants down around our ankles, and yet here we are with our pants down around the ankles uh, shortly thereafter. So it's a lot easier said than done, and it takes a lot of courage. It really does to take any of these roads, and we'll see because Kobe Altman, for the first time ever, is getting a lot of negative publicity from not locally but national NBA people. So we'll see how that ends up translating. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. I I do think any young team that's starting, or not starting, but playing heavy minutes to Garland, Sexton, Kevin Porter Jr., Dylan Windler, uh, whoever they take in the first round, um, those existing young guys are going to have to really step up if playoffs in Atchi, um ha- not having a lotto pick and, and a, a shot at – um, a really, really damn good draft. Um, that it, it, they'd have to take one hell of a leap, and then you, you're going to be able to celebrate that. Um, but Anthony, I really do appreciate uh, your time. I, I've probably taken up too much of it, but I really, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, to all our listeners, make sure you're checking them out on 92.3 The Fan. Do you have anything you want to plug and, and let the people know about that's coming up? Uh, absolutely not, except now I'm in college basketball and NBA mode the rest of the way. I think this weekend was the first sign of that while Ken Carmer was watching NASCAR and the race at Las Vegas. Uh, I was watching Ohio State versus Maryland and uh, a bunch of Lakers versus Celtics, and I'm in. I'm in the rest of the way. It's all basketball all the time, even – and I know you're not you're, – you're up there in a different country now, but uh, even some local high school basketball I've been taking in. So I'm now transitioning to basketball for the rest of the year. Look at you go. I, I, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody that's listened how much you love the sport and how, how deep that love runs. So always really do appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's an exciting time to be a Cavs fan. I mean, we started the rebuild two and one. How about that? Uh, so big <laughs> thanks again to Anthony. Thanks to all of our listeners. If you want to support the show, the best way you can do so is by leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books because Apple's metrics are flawed. And tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth helps us out a 
lot. If you want to subscribe to the Chase Down Premium, just 99 cents for your first month, five bucks a month after that. We really appreciate the support in all of its forms. So thanks again to Anthony. Thanks to our listeners. Until next time, go Caps. 